Section number 19 of The Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anise. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section 19. A whole month of that voyage from May the 15th to June the 13th I wasted at the Andaman Islands near Malay, for that any old Chinaman could be alive in Pekin began, after some time, to seem the most quixotic notion that ever entered a human brain, and these jungled islands to which I came after a shocking vast orgy one night at Calcutta, when I fired not only the city but the river, pleased my fancy to such an extent that at one time I intended to abide there. I was at the one called in the chart Saddle Hill, the smallest of them, I think, and seldom have I had such sensations of peace as I lay a whole burning day in a rising vale, deeply shaded in palm and tropical ranknesses, watching thence the Speranza at anchor. But there was a little offing here at the shore whence the valley arose, and I could see one of its long peaks lined with coconut trees, and all cloud burned out of the sky except the flimsiest lawn figments, and the sea as absolutely calm as a lake roughened with breezes, yet making a considerable noise in its breaking on the shore, as I have noticed in these sorts of places, I do not know why. These poor Andaman people seem to have been quite savage, for I met a number of them in roaming the island, nearly skeletons, yet with limbs and vertebrae still, in general cohering, and in some cases dry-skinned and mummified relics of flesh, and never anywhere a sign of clothes. A very singular thing, considering their nearness to high old civilizations all about them. They looked small and black, or almost, and I never found a man without finding on or near him a spear and other weapons, so that they were eager folk, and the wayward dark earth was in them too, as she should be in her children. They had in many cases some reddish discoloration, which may have been the traces of betel-nut stains, for betel-nuts abound there. And I was so pleased with these people— that I took on board with the gig one of their little tree canoes, which was my foolishness, for gig and canoe were only three nights later washed from the decks into the middle of the sea. I passed down the Straits of Malacca, and in that short distance between the Andaman Islands and the southwest corner of Borneo I was thrice so mauled that at times it seemed quite out of the question that anything built by man could escape such unfettered cataclysms, and I resigned myself, but with bitter reproaches, perish darkly. The effect of the third upon me, when it was over, was the unloosening afresh of all my evil passion, for I said, since they mean to slay me, death shall find me rebellious, and for weeks I could not sight some specially happy village or embrasious spread of woodland that I did not stop the ship and land the materials for their destruction, so that nearly all those spicy lands about the north of Australia were bare the traces of my hand for many a year, for more and more my voyage became dawdling and zigzagged, as the merest whim directed it, or the movement of the pointer on the chart, and I thought of eating the lotus of Circes and Nepenthe in some enchanted nook of this bowering summer, where from my hut door I could see through the pearl hues of opium the sea lagoon slaver lazily upon the old coral atoll, and the coconut tree would droop like slumber, and the breadfruit tree would moan, in sweet and weary dream, and I should watch the Speranza lie anchored in the pale Atoll Lake, year after year, 
and wonder what she was and whence, and why she dozed so deep for ever, and after an age of melancholy peace and burdened bliss, I should note that sun and moon had ceased revolving, and hung inert, opening anon a heavy lid to doze and drowse again, and God would sigh, and nuff, and nod, and being would swoon to sleep, for that any old Chinaman should be alive in Pekin was a thing so fantastically maniac as to draw for me at times sudden fits of wild red laughter that left me faint. During a space of four months, from the 18th June to the 23rd October, I visited the Fijis, where I saw skulls, still surrounded with remnants of extraordinary halos of stiff hair, women clad in girdles made of thongs fixed in a belt, and in Samoa near, bodies crowned with coronets of nautilus shell, and traces of turmeric paint and tattooing, and in one townlet a great assemblage of carcasses, suggesting by their look some festival or dance, so that I believe these people were overthrown, without the least foreknowledge of anything. The women of the Maoris wore an abundance of green jade ornaments, and I found a peculiar kind of shell trumpet, one of which I have now, also a tattooing chisel and a nicely carved wooden bowl. The people of New Caledonia, on the other hand, went, I should think, naked, confining their attention to the hair, and in this resembling the Fijians, for they seemed to wear an artificial hair made of the fur of some creature like a bat, and also they wore wooden masks and great rings, for the ear, no doubt, which must have fallen to the shoulders, for the earth was in them all, and made them wild, perverse, and various like herself. I went from one to the other without any system whatever, searching for the ideal resting place, and often thinking that I had found it, but only wearying of it at the thought that there was a yet deeper and dreamier in the world. But in this search I received a check, my God, which chilled me to the marrow and set me flying from these places. One evening, the twenty-ninth November, I dined rather late, at eight, sitting, as was my custom in calm weather, cross-legged on the cabin rug at the port aft corner, a small semicircle of Speranza gold plate before me, and near above me the red-shaded lamp with green conical reservoir, whose creakings never cease in the stillest mid-sea, and beyond the plates the array of preserved soups, meat extracts, meats, fruit, sweets, wines, nuts, liqueurs, coffee on the silver spirit tripod, glasses, cruet, and so on, which it was always my first care to select from the storeroom open and lay out once for all in the morning on rising. I was late, seven being my hour, for on that day I had been engaged in the occasionally necessary but always deferred task of overhauling the ship, brushing here a rope with tar, there a board with paint, there a crank with oil, rubbing a door-handle, a brass fitting, filling the three cabin lamps, dusting mirrors and furniture, dashing the great, neat-joinered planes of deck with bucketfuls, or high in air, chopping loose with its rigging the mizzen-top mast, which, since a month, was sprained at the clamps, all this in cotton drawers under loose kwamis, barefooted, my beard knotted up, the sun ablaze, the sea smooth and pale, with the smooth pallor of strong currents, the ship still enough, no land in sight, yet great tracts of seaweed making eastward. I was working from eleven a.m. till near seven, when sudden darkness interrupted, for I wished to have it all over in one obnoxious day. I was therefore very tired when I went down, lit the central chain-lever lamp and my own two, washed and dressed in my bedroom, and sat to dinner in the dining-hall corner. 
I ate voraciously, with sweat, as usual, pouring down my eager brow, using knife or spoon in the right hand, but never the western fork, licking the plates clean in the Mohammedan manner, and drinking pretty freely. Still I was tired, and went upon deck, where I had the threadbare blue-velvet easy-chair with the broken left arm before the wheel, and in it I sat smoking cigar after cigar from the Indian D-box, half asleep, yet conscious. The moon came up into a pretty cloudless sky, and she was bright, but not bright enough to outshine the enlightened flight of the ocean, which that night was one continuous swamp of jack-o'-lantern phosphorescence, a wild but faint luminosity mingled with stars and flashes of brilliance, the whole trooping unanimously eastward, as if in haste with elfin momentous purpose, a boundless congregation in the sweep of a strong oceanic current. I could hear it in my slumberous lassitude, struggling and gurgling at the tide rudder, and making wet, sloppy noises under the sheer of the poop, and I was aware that the Speranza was gliding along pretty fast, drawn into that procession, probably at the rate of four to six knots, but I did not care, knowing very well that no land was within two hundred miles of my bows, for I was in longitude 173 degrees, at the latitude of Fiji and the Society Islands, between those two, and after a time the cigar drooped and dropped from my mouth, and sleep overcame me, and I slept there, in the lap of the infinite. So that something preserves me, something, someone, and for what? If I had slept in the cabin, I must most certainly have perished, for lying there on the poop, I dreamed a dream which once I had dreamed on the ice, far, far yonder in the forgotten Hyperborean north, that I was in an Arabian paradise, a garden of peaches, and I had a very long vision of it, for I walked among the trees and picked the fruit, and pressed the blossoms to my nostrils with breathless inhalations of love, till a horrible sickness woke me, and when I opened my eyes the night was black, the moon gone down, everything wet with dew the sky arrayed with most glorious stars like a thronged bazaar of tiarad rajas in begums with spangled trains, and all the air fragrant with that mortal scent. And high and wide uplifted before me, stretching from the northern to the southern limit, a row of eight or nine inflamed smokes, as from the chimneys of some cyclopean foundry awork all night, most solemn, most great and dreadful in the solemn night, Eight or nine, I should say, or it might be seven, or it might be ten, for I did not count them. And from those craters puffed up gusts of encrimsoned material, here a gust and there a gust, with tinseled fumes that convolved upon themselves, and sparks and flashes all veiled in a garish haze of light. For the foundry worked, though languidly, and upon a rocky land four miles ahead, which no chart had ever marked, the Speranza drove straight with the current of the phosphorus sea. As I rose I fell flat, and what I did thereafter I did in a state of existence whose acts to the waking mind appear unreal as dream. I must at once, I think, have been conscious that here was the cause of the destruction of mankind, that it still surrounded its own neighborhood with poisonous fumes, and that I was approaching it. I must have somehow crawled or drag myself forward, there is an impression on my mind that it was a purple land of pure porphyry. There is some faint memory or dream of hearing a long-drawn booming of waves upon its crags. I do not know whence I have them. 
I think that I remember retching with desperate jerks of the travailing intestines, also that I was on my face as I moved the regulator in the engine-room, but any recollection of going down the stairs or of coming up again I have not. Happily the wheel was tied, the rudder hard to port, and as the ship moved she must therefore have turned, and I must have been back to untie the wheel in good time, for when my senses came I was lying there, my head against the under-gimbal, one foot on a spoke of the wheel, no land in sight, and morning breaking. This made me so sick that for either two or three days I lay without eating on the chair near the wheel, only rarely waking to sufficient sense to see to it that she was making westward from that place. And on the morning when I finally roused myself, I did not know whether it was the second or the third morning, so that my calendar, so scrupulously kept, may be a day out, for to this day I have never been at the pains to ascertain whether I am here writing now on the 5th or the 6th of June. Well, on the 4th or the 5th evening after this, just as the sun was sinking beyond the rim of the sea, I happened to look where he hung motionless on the starboard bow, and there I saw a clean-cut, black-green spot against his red. A most unusual sight here and now. A ship, a poor thing, as it turned out when I got near her, without any sign of mast, heavily waterlogged, some relics of old rigging hanging over, even her bowsprit apparently broken in the middle, though I could not see it, and she nothing more than a hirsute green mass of old weeds and sea-things from bowsprit-tip to poop, and from bulwarks to water-line, stout as a hedgehog, only awaiting there the next high sea to founder. It being near my dinner-hour and night's rest, I stopped the speranza some fifteen yards from her, and commenced to pace my spacious poop as usual before eating, and as I paced I would glance at her, wondering at her destiny, and who were the human men that had lived on her, their Christian names and family names, their age and thought and way of life and beards, till the desire arose within me to go to her and see, and I threw off my outer garments, uncovered and unroped the cedar-cutter, the only boat except the air-pinnace left me intact, and got her down by the mizzen five-block pulley system. But it was a ridiculous nonsense, for having paddled to her, I was thrown into paroxysms of rage by repeated failures to scale her bulwarks, low as they were. My hands indeed could reach, but I found no hold upon the slimy mass, and three rope-ends which I caught were also untenably slippery, so that I jerked always back into the boat, my clothes a mass of filth, and the only thought in my blazing brain a twenty-pound charge of gun-cotton, of which I had plenty, to blow her to uttermost hell. I had to return to the speranza, get a half-inch rope, then back to the other, for I would not be balked in such a way, though now the dark was come, only slightly tempered by a half-moon, and I getting hungry, and from minute to minute more fiendishly ferocious. Finally, by dint of throwing, I got the rope-loop round a mast-stump, drew myself up, and made fast the boat, my left hand cut by some cursed shell. And all for what? the imperiousness of a whim. The faint moonlight showed an ample tract of deck, invisible in most parts under rolled beds of putrid seaweed, and no bodies, and nothing but a concave large esplanade of seaweed. She was a ship of probably fifteen hundred tons, three-masted, and a sailor. I got aft, for I had on thick outer babooshes, and saw that only four of the companion steps remained. By a small leap, however, 
I could descend to that desolation, where the stale sea-stench seemed concentrated into a very essence of rankness. Here I experienced a singular ghostly awe and timorousness, lest she should sink with me or something, but striking matches I saw an ordinary cabin, with some fungoids, skulls, bones, and rags, but not one cohering skeleton. In the second starboard berth was a small table, and on the floor a thick round ink-pot, whose continual rolling on its side made me look down, and there I saw a flat square book with black covers, which curved half open of itself, for it had been wet and stained. This I took, and went back to the Speranza, for that ship was nothing but an emptiness, and a stench of the crude elements of life, nearly assimilated now to the rank deep to which she was wedded, and soon to be absorbed into its nature and being. To become a sea, in little, as I, in time, my God, shall be nothing but an earth in little. During dinner and after, I read the book with some difficulty, for it was pen-written in French and discolored, and it turned out to be the journal of someone, a passenger and voyager, I imagine, who called himself Albert Tissou, and the ship the Marie Meyer. There was nothing remarkable in the narrative that I could see, commonplace descriptions of South Sea scenes, records of weather, cargoes, and the like, till I came to the last written page, and that was remarkable enough. It was dated the 13th of April. Strange thing! My good God, incredibly strange! That same day, twenty long years ago, when I reached the Pole, and the writing on that page was quite different from the neat look of the rest, proving immoderate excitement, wildest haste, and he heads it, cinq heures, I suppose in the evening, for he does not say, and he writes, monstrous event, phenomenon without likeness, the witnesses of which must forever live immortalized in the annals of the universe, an event which will make even Mamma, Henry, and Juliet admit that I was justified in undertaking this most eventful voyage. Talking with Captain Tomberell on the poop, when a sudden exclamation from him, Mondu, his visage whitens. I follow the direction of his gaze to eastward. I behold, eight kilometers perhaps away, ten monstrous water-spouts, reaching up, up, high enough, all apparently in one straight line, with intervals of nine hundred meters, very regularly placed. They do not wander, dance, nor waver, as water-spouts do, nor are they at all lily-shaped, like water-spouts, but ten hewn pillars of water, with uniform diameter from top to bottom, only a little twisted here and there, and, as I divine, fifty meters in girth, five, ten, stupendous minutes we look, Captain Tomberell mechanically repeating and repeating under his breath, Mondu, Mondu, the whole crew now on the poop, I, agitated but collected, watch in hand, and suddenly all is blotted out, the pillars of water doubtless still there, can no more be seen, for the ocean all about them is steaming, hissing higher than the pillars, a dense white vapor, vast in extent, whose venomous sibilation we at this distance can quite distinctly hear. It is affrighting, it is intolerable. The eyes can hardly bear to watch, the ears to hear. It seems unholy travail, monstrous birth. But it lasts not long, all at once the Marie Meyer commences to pitch and roll violently, and the sea, a moment since calm, 
is now rough, and at the same time through the white vapor we see a dark shadow slowly rising, the shadow of a mighty back, a newborn land, bearing upwards ten flames of fire, slowly, steadily, out of the sea, into the clouds. At the moment when that sublime emergence ceases, or seems to cease, the grand thought that smites me is this. I, Albert Tissou, am immortalized. My name shall never perish from among men. I rush down, I write it. The latitude is 16 degrees 21, 13 south. The longitude 176 degrees 58, 19 west. There is a great deal of running about on the decks. They are descending. There is surely a strange odor of almonds. I only hope. It is so dark. Mon... So the Frenchman Tissou. End of section 19. Recording by Anise. Portland, Oregon www.strange-medicine.com